I surrender all. If we were honest, wouldn't most of us be singing, I surrender some. I surrender some. Just a little I'll give to Jesus. I surrender some. Isn't that true? You know, uh, as one of the men who oftentimes does lead worship up here, there is that tension that we often feel in our hearts, to be honest, that we sing things that we honestly don't generally mean. We want to mean. I mean, because the Holy Spirit's inside of us. We want to mean it. But we have that stinking flesh in us, don't we? Tonight, or this morning, I should say, we're going to be talking about living for God in a world against God for the glory of God. Sounds like a mouthful right there. Living for God in a world against God, all for the glory of God. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verse 11 here in just a minute. But doesn't it sound so simple? Living for God in a world against God, all for the glory, for, glory, for God, glory of God. Yay! We got it. We all got it perfected. We all got it down pat. In fact, I should just be able to say this title, walk away, church is over, let's go home. Wouldn't that be nice if that's the way it was? It'd be so nice. Um, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter, but before we look at 1 Peter, I want to set up today with actually a thought from Paul in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, Paul said this, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, and in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. You guys are doing a great job of loving each other. This is a great thing, church. This is saying, Church of Thessalonica, Macedonia area, you're doing a great job. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so much more and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. Now, this is not the text we're going to focus on today, but if I was to go back right there, most of us, if we said, make your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands, most of us say, Pastor Nate, that is almost unbearable right there. Because how often do we have a hard time minding our own business? I mean, truthfully, family, we make it our business to be in people, be in people's business. We scroll Facebook, why? Because we want to see their business. We jump in life because we want to be in business. We choose not to live a quiet life, but rather we choose to be in people's business. And here Paul is saying, listen, don't just love the brothers, but you're in a world, live a quiet life. Mind your own business. As we look at 1 Peter, Peter, although totally different author than Paul, Peter is challenging us to live for God in a world against God, all for the glory of God. And as we look at 1 Peter here, I just want to give a little backdrop to what's going on. First of all, the reason why I'm actually speaking this text, or teaching through this text, is because Pastor Seth and I are actually working through together through the book of 1 Peter, and this happened to be the section that I'm coming, I'm coming along to teach. So this is a beautiful text I'm super excited about. The, uh, 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter. He was the foot-and-mouth disease guy. Um, he was that guy that would always speak before he thought sometimes, and yet the Holy Spirit used him to really make impact in this world. As Paul's, most of his missionary work was geared towards Gentiles, Peter's was generally to the Jewish Christians. Even though we're going to look here, this was also written to a Gentile culture. In fact, in the very first verse of First Peter chapter 1, he says this, This is to God's elect, exiles scattered through provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Capricotia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's saying there, he goes, listen, this is to a large group. This is not just to Jewish Christians, but this is actually to all believers, to those who are called the elect, the chosen ones. And so here, Peter is addressing a people group that is actually, although it's those churches in those cities, it actually addresses to us today. 
Not only that, but Paul, uh, Peter here is addressing something through this whole book. And the whole book is basically about how to live for God in a world against God for the glory of God. When persecution is coming, how do you live for God? When life is hard, how do you live for God? What are we called to do? And so Peter addresses that. And as Pastor Seth preached on last time he preached out of 1 Peter chapter 2, he said it starts with this. Knowing your cornerstone foundation. Jesus Christ is our cornerstone of our salvation and our faith. You have to get this right because if you don't get the foundation right, everything else crumbles. And he goes, and when you have your foundation right, you will all of a sudden realize that because he is your foundation, because he is your salvation, because he is your savior, in verse 9 he says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possessions. Because we are children of God, we are God's special possessions. We need to first start with our study today of understanding that the foundation of Jesus Christ is of utmost importance. And then understand our identity and who he is. We are a royal priesthood. We're chosen as special possessions of God. But not just stopping there. But he says this, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are special possessions. We are a royal priesthood because we are called to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So I'm going to start this section that we're getting, getting ready to start with. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 is this. How much is God worthy of all glory, honor, and praise? At what point in our life, to what point does the glory of God need to invade every area of our life? If we don't get God's glory as primary, it's going to throw off everything we look through Scripture here today. And you're going to be going, I don't like that. I'm going to be mad at you. Ah, you're going to be mad at me. You're going to be mad at God's word. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to walk away bitter and angry. But when we can say God's glory is primary, so I will trust God's word. Can we do that today? Can we acknowledge that God's glory is primary? In fact, because I love including the body of Christ in saying things, can we all say together, God's glory is primary. Ready? One, two, three. God's glory is primary. That is the primary purpose of us being saved. It's God's glory. The primary purpose of us being a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possessions, is because his glory, his praises are primary. So let's start looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 11. Be your friends. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war in your soul. Let's pause for a second. First of all, Peter here starts with saying, dear friends. Now, as I studied this and I read this, I kind of relate to why he would actually say dear friends, because about what he's about to say is not going to be easy to listen to. It's not going to be easy to follow along. And I have this history. I don't know if any of um, some of my students have had to experience this, but anytime I have to call something out with some of the students in our youth ministry, I usually go to them and I'll say, uh, hey, Jake, you know I love you, right? Yeah. Jake, you know I love you, right? Jake, you know I love you? All right. And then I would share something. I was getting the foundation of the relationship understood because what I'm about to share next may be a hard pill to swallow. And here he's saying, listen, dear friends, you're not just some strangers that I don't care about. You are people that I have a relationship with. He goes, dear friends, I urge you, I implore you, I'm begging you, listen, 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 as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. This morning, I want to start with this. There is a war in our hearts and in our culture between our sinful desires and our soul. Can we all agree with that? There is a war going on. There's a battle going on. And too often, we don't take it very serious. 
This is not peacetime in the hearts of this world. This is war. About 15 years ago, I had a a youth leader that uh, served with me in youth ministry, and he went off to Afghanistan. And when he went to Afghanistan, we would trade letters back and forth and talk while he was there. And he wrote me a letter and said, I just, I was like, he was trying to describe what it was like. And he goes, Nathan, you need to go out and check out this documentary on Netflix. And he told me me the name of the documentary. I don't remember the name of it. But he goes, what it is, it's actually a documentary crew followed a uh, military group from the time they were getting ready to leave the United States, go to Afghanistan, stay there for 18 months, and come back. And he goes, it was a two-hour documentary, and they took clips of it. And he goes, I want you to watch it because I want you to know how to pray for me. I want you to know what I'm experiencing. So I watched this documentary, and in this documentary, these men, these, these, these military men and women were getting in this uh, plane, or not plane, they were getting in this uh, bus as they're heading across the United States to go get on the plane, to head over to Afghanistan. And as they're on this plane and train, they're all celebrating And they're like laughing and they're making jokes and they're talking to each other and everything is like butterflies and bubble gum. I mean, it's like everything's easy, everything's good. We're laughing, we're singing songs and celebrating and everything's wonderful. And then they were over in Afghanistan and some friends died. And then, two hours in this documentary, they showed these same men coming back on this bus. Faces somber. Faces serious. There was no laughing on the bus on the way back. Many of them have lost friends. Many of them coming back hurt. All of them emotionally in pain. Why were they so serious on the way back but not so serious on the way there. Because they experienced war. They experienced the reality that war brings. They experienced the damage of it. And friends, we are in war. We cannot get away from it, and we should not take it lightly. Ephesians talks about putting on the full armor of God, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But we're in war, and it's very serious. And our war is not a physical one. Our spiritual battle too often gets confused with a physical battle. You ever notice that? There's a spiritual battle going on, but we confuse it with a physical battle. And so we get our emotions caught up into it, and we start screaming at the world and trying to get angry at the world and say things to the world to get them to change. They need Jesus. We try to change the outside, the physical part, without the Holy Spirit changing the inside, and we get in this battle with them. And we get things so topsy-turvy that we get our emotions caught into it. But Ephesians 6 says this, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. It's against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly realms. You see, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And it says, but against rulers. And we might think, well, that's against our rulers here. No, that is actually talking about spiritual rulers, ones that are not of this world. The darkness in this world, and there is a spiritual battle going on in this world, and there is darkness, and we're taking our battle against people instead of against the darkness. And we're not putting on the full armor of God, and then we take everything personal. Don't we? We have to recognize that we are in a battle, but the battle is spiritual. Not only that, that we all have actual flesh and have sinful desires. Can we all acknowledge that we have sinful desires? I'm going to give you a little secret. Pastors have sinful desires too. We have flesh that we have to give to the Holy Spirit and surrender. We have to live in the verse that says, I'm crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
That is a call for every one of us. We are in a spiritual battle, and we need to abstain from our sinful desires. Not just avoid, but sometimes we need to downright run from our sinful desires. Abstain means to not indulge, to not partake, to avoid at all costs. In other words, your flesh will naturally want to take you into a direction. Your flesh will naturally want to take you into a direction. With the power of the Holy Spirit, we're called to fight against our flesh and follow the Spirit of God that is inside of us. But why abstain or fight against our flesh? See, we got the, what we're called to do. As foreigners abstain simple desires and wage war against your soul. But why? Let's keep reading here. In verse 12, it says this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. You see, the purpose of avoiding and running and abstaining from our sinful flesh desires and the purpose is godly living, the purpose of godly living is of key importance to our fight and it is for the world, number one, to see our godly living. Live in such good lives that the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. Here's the thing. The world is called to see the Holy Spirit living out inside of us. We do not live in a bubble, and people are watching. If we're living for Christ, people will notice. In fact, they can't help but notice because it's not normal. Is it not normal? Have you ever saw someone that you're going, you're looking at them, they're honoring God, and you're like, my heart just resonates with them. I think they're a Christian. Anybody else done that? Yeah. Why? Because they're not living in that bubble. They're living out the life of Christ in their life. We don't do it so we look good. We don't do it so people think high of us. We don't do it so we get praise. We do it for two reasons. When accusations come, our God-honoring living character and attitude defends us above our own verbal defense. Have you ever met someone who felt like they had to defend themselves with their own words? Yeah. And here he's saying, listen, let your godly living be the defense. Let the Holy Spirit living out of you, let that be your defense. You don't have to retaliate. You don't have to respond. Too many people get in an argument on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and they feel like they got to respond. I got to get the last word. I got to get the last word. I got to get the last word in. Maybe you're at work and you got to get the last word in. And he's saying, listen, let your godly living be in front of them. But not only your godly living be a, a, a solution to their accusations, but also but the primary purpose is for the world to glorify God. Why do we live good lives among the pagans, the heathens, that they accuse you of doing wrong, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. The call is, guys, we honor God with our life so the world glorifies God. I asked you at the very beginning, how much is God worthy of our life? To what point do we say, God, I surrender all because you are worthy of all? You see, the world will glorify God in one of three ways. For one thing, here's number one. A believer who lives a godly life is actually healthy for a community. You all know that? A believer who lives out the life of Christ is actually good for a community. But here's the hard part. We try to get the living good, but then we get our mouth in the way. And we become that thorn in the flesh to our community. Don't we do that sometimes? We become the thorn in the flesh of community. You see, this ha- the world sees us living a life of love, respect, care, and concern, and cooperation. It honors God, and it blesses our community. But when we're difficult, we throw it all away. We feel, why, do we, why are we difficult at times, though? That raises the question in my heart. Why, why am I difficult? Nathan? Because I know I can be difficult sometimes, all right? I'll just be honest with you. I know I can be difficult. Why do I get difficult? And I wrote down a couple reasons why I get difficult. So I'm not saying this is you. This is, this is me, all right? I get difficult sometimes because as a Christian, sometimes I feel like the world just pushes and pushes and pushes. And I'm tired of it. 
And so I just want to draw a line in the sand and say, push no more. I'm done. Anybody else feel like that? Because that's me. As a Christian, I go, "Ah, my rights and my freedoms are being taken away. So I become difficult. I I start thinking, man, I'm afraid of what happens to this. What's going to happen to America? What's going to happen to this world if I don't fight? I get a fear of losing our country. Does that resonate? Do those fears resonate with anybody here? And I don't say I live in a, a world of fear. These are just things that go through my mind and flood my mind. But I'm going to be honest with you guys. Too often we cannot imagine God's will without America. But God doesn't need America. America needs God. Y'all get that? God doesn't need America. America needs God. And we get those flipped upside down. And so we get offended when our rights are being taken away. We get offended when they keep getting pushed. And so we become difficult. We become obstinate. And we, what we become is something that does not draw the world to glorify God. Fact, we become those people that say, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be like that. We're called to glorify God. We've got to ask this question as a Christian in America. Are our American rights more important than our call to follow Christ? And that's a tough question to answer. And that's something I've had to wrestle through. And I can tell you, as pastors at this church, we've had to wrestle through those questions these last couple of years. Because it's like, do my rights trump my call to follow God? Oh, I want to scream yes. But the answer is no. Remember, our battle is not physical, but it's spiritual. What we need is brothers and sisters, people who call on the name of Jesus to pray to the Lord. And let him fight our battles. You see, this world will give praise to God when we live out Christ in our community. Number two way the world will live out, uh, give glory to God. People in the world will glorify God because of our works if our good deeds point them to Jesus and they get saved. You see, Instead of being the obstinate person, if we're the person that lives out the life of Christ, the love of Christ, as First Thessalonians said, we lived a quiet life that wasn't being too busy and getting people's business. If we lived a life that was just honoring to God, the light of Christ would shine out of us. Oftentimes, though, our lives push people away from the gospel of Jesus. They say, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be like them. But I can tell you this. If we are living out the love and life and truth of Christ and they get saved, they will praise God for the investment of us living and honoring God and our life to them. Many of us here, in fact, all of us here, if you are a child of Jesus Christ, if you are joint heirs with Jesus, if you are saved, we have something to celebrate, and we have someone who pointed us to Jesus through godly living. Someone who pointed you through a word. Mine was Bill Stern when I was five years old. All of us have someone that pointed us to Christ. It's to, it's to some extent. So, godly living, the world will praise us, praise God for our godly living if they come to know Christ. But I'll be honest with you guys, This text right here is actually not about either of those. This text right here is about the third time that the world will bring glory to God. It says this in that verse there. You may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That reference to on the day he visits us is actually referring to the great white throne judgment. When they who do not receive Christ are actually being judged. I don't know how, and I don't know why, but I understand this. Somehow, my good deeds will draw the world who don't know Christ to thank God and bring glory to God. 
at the end times. I kind of think it might be this. When we live out the life of Christ, we are glimpses of light that point people to Jesus. And they will step back at the end time when they are in judgment going, Lord, even though I refuse and reject it, I still praise you for the opportunity through someone's light. That's my subjection. But I ultimately go, I don't know. But I know this. When we live godly lives in front of the world, there will be a point where they will praise God and give him glory on the day that he comes to visit us. So, we got to come through and wrestle through the idea of God's glory is the purpose of godly living. But here's the thing. All of this takes faith because we cannot see the future and we cannot tell if someone will get saved. We can't tell if a community will, and we can't look at the community and go, oh, look at I, I showed God's love and all of a sudden everything changes like this. We, we, we can't tell and we can't see actually the end times right now. We are all living in faith that God, well, God will be glorified through our life. Is that true? We all have to live in the understanding that we have to live by faith. And that's what makes it hard. Because we go, we're so used to the physical, the tangible, the things that we can touch right here and now, that we go, ah, this is so hard. But that is why we have to remember we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and darkness of this world. Because we have to have the long game view. We get so caught up in the here and now that we forget the long game. It's like, I'm not a runner. But my dear friend John Frazina is a runner. And I'm telling you, if he went on a 100% all-out sprint in that first quarter mile, and he was throwing elbows to everybody around him, and getting all physical in that first hundred or quarter mile, he wouldn't be able to finish that marathon. Why? Because he didn't have the long view in sight. And we have to not get caught up in the elbows here, but we have to think long term. And we got to walk by faith and trusting that God's glory will come to place, not just in our life of living, but actually the world will praise God and give him glory. See, this is important because we have to trust God. So I'm going to ask this question with you. When we move forward in the rest of this text, will you trust God? That is a response question. Okay. All right. Will you trust God? The reason why I ask that is because if you're not saying God's glory is primary and I will trust God above all, it'll be a hard pill to swallow next. All right? Before we jump into this text, I want to describe two different kinds of texts. And this is important because some people will want to relate, relate this or call this a certain type. We're going to talk about a description text versus a prescription text. All right? Because if you get the description text mixed up with the prescription text, you will do things you're not called to do, and you won't do what you are called to do. Does that make sense what I'm saying here? For example, a description text is a text, that, a passage that says what did happen. For example, Abraham offered Isaac on the altar. David fought Goliath. Noah built an ark. The early church gathered daily. These are all meant to describe the context of a situation. Many times we will try to make direct applications, which would actually cause us to misinterpret a text. We call everything a giant in our life. Do we honestly say that? And we put ourselves in the exact same boat as David. Now we can make some application. But we can't make a direct prescription application. Otherwise, we're gonna, every time we see a tall dude, we're going to go kill him. That doesn't work like that. Or when our kids are at some point, they become, I think it's like 12, we're going to go try to kill them on an altar. We might want to feel like we do that. We might want to do that sometimes. We should never do that. All right? Just because Abraham did it doesn't mean we should do it. So we make description texts. But there's also a thing called the prescription text. A prescription text says what should happen. It is actually giving a declaration. It's a teaching or command given in the Bible for people to obey. These say what should happen. They're generally written in the context to groups or audiences, but not always. 
So the general, larger audience's statements. It's not a specific conversation to one person, but it's a general statement to a small group or a large group, but it's a general statement what should happen. So one is describing what did happen. One is saying what should happen. One is saying what someone did do. One is saying what someone should do. And here we're talking about description versus a prescription. Peter's practical prescription of godly living points the world to Christ. And the reason why we need to know the difference is we need to know both the prescription and the purpose of the prescription of following verses, otherwise we will struggle. If we don't know the prescription and the reason behind the prescription, we will struggle. If we do not understand the passage as a prescription, we will ignore it. We will say, this does not apply to me. Right? We'll say, this does not apply to me. If we do not understand the purpose or the why, we will think, this might be applied to me, but this is not fair. So before we jump into verse 13, I want to just give that declaration of why. Why the rest of this? Because the world will see your good works. They will glorify your Father who is in heaven. God's glory is at the root of what's coming next. Okay? You with me there? You with me so far? God's glory is at the root of what's coming next. So that they will see your good works. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So here, let's jump into verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Pause for a second. Let's look at that word submit. Okay? Sometimes I think we think it means something when it really doesn't mean what we think it means. All right? In fact, one of my favorite movies is a movie called The Princess Bride. Anybody ever watch The Princess Bride? It's a fun flick. It's It's a great flick. It is. It's awesome. And I quote it quite often. In fact, sometimes I'll say a quote like, Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. Wow, true love. That dream within a dream. I quote it quite often. Probably watched it way too many times. But there's actually a, another uh, phrase that I really appreciate. So this Kidnapper thief kidnapped Princess Buttercup. And they're escaping with Princess Buttercup because he's trying to cause a war. And this gentleman who, is Princess, who loves Princess Buttercup is chasing after them to save Princess Buttercup. And every time this mind-boggling, awesome kidnapper has a scheme, this, kidnap, uh, this, this hero comes in and breaks, breaks the scheme. And like keeps going through, and he goes, inconceivable! He keeps saying inconceivable, like, oh, I can't believe this. But then Inigo Montoya says this, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And with submit, sometimes we use it in a way that we think it means this. Or we have this grand view of it means this but it doesn't husbands we might try to abuse that word like submit woman don't do that bad 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 in fact men let's all say together bad ready one two three bad don't say that but here he says submit so what does submit mean In a military sense, submit means to arrange or to divide in two ranks. That's in the military sense. It literally means there's a structure and order in the military. The general is not the combat crew leader. The lieutenant is not this other officer. They all have different roles, different purposes. Guess what? They all are very, very, very important, right? The general could be a general, but if he's a general of no army, he's not much of a general. Right? All very important. But it means to arrange or to divide the ranks. 
But in a non-military sense, it means this, a voluntary cooperation in which one gives another control or authority. A voluntary cooperation in which one gives another control or authority. Those are important definitions to understand because if we don't get that, this is what we think it is. Well, I'll say what it's not. True submission is not forced. You see, if it's voluntary, it can't be forced. And if it's forced, it's slavery, not voluntary. And so submission cannot be forced. Submitting does not mean one is more important than the other, although it does give order of authority in answering to God. Submitting does not mean you have to agree with somebody. Amen? You don't have to agree with somebody. You just voluntarily cooperate by giving them authority and control. Something does not mean you cannot have a different option. No, opinion. Misspelling. Spell check ruined that for me. Something does not mean you cannot have a different opinion. Something does not mean you like or even prefer someone's leadership. Submitting, this is the crutch of it all. I want, if you write down notes, I want you to write this one down. Submitting is not about trusting earthly authorities, but actually about trusting God with our earthly authorities. You grasp that? Submitting is not about actually trusting the earthly authorities. It's about trusting God with our earthly authorities. Because there are a lot of authorities that God has placed in my life that I'll be honest with you, I have questions and skepticisms about them. Do we have that sometimes? Yes, we do. We have doubts about them. And we go, ugh. And that doesn't mean we have to agree with them. That doesn't mean we even have to like everything they choose. That doesn't mean we have to have a different opinion. But what it means is this. We voluntarily cooperate by giving them control and authority. By giving them control and authority. As we progress, we're going to be looking at two different authorities in the text that we are called to have voluntary cooperation. But before we jump into those, I'm going to raise this question with you. Have you ever met someone who is very difficult in every situation with everybody, and all they do is they put the brakes on and fight everything you do? Have you ever felt, met that person? He's saying this, don't be that person. Don't be the person that if, if the leaders say to do this, then all of a sudden they're arguing about this. And if they, say go, if they say go right, well, all of a sudden you want to go left. And if they say go left, no, you want to go right. He's saying this, listen, have voluntary cooperation. Don't be that person that's always causing headaches, frustration for everyone and all leadership around them. Don't be that person who refuses and pushes back on everything. As we will read, believers are not called to be difficult people for authorities. You guys get that? Believers are not called to be difficult people for authorities, but rather are called to live in a way that the world will see their good deeds and glorify God. Remember, what is the purpose? God's glory. So, with that said, let's move on. Looking at verse 13b. We said, submit to the Lord's sake to every human authority. Now, part second half of that. Whether to the emperor as a supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. You see, as we're looking at this, some of us might be going, okay, we're called to submit to an emperor and our governor. But Pastor Nate, that's emperors and governors, and we live in a world with constitutions and presidents. Amen? I'm going to raise this question for you. What is the purpose of this text? So people will see your good works, and they will glorify God. It's not even about our rights. It's about God's glory. God's glory. So we might say, well, we don't have these emperors and kings and whatever. And I'm going to ask, are we going to try to use a loophole to not bring glory to God? Number two, when I talk about that, 
if you look at the Greek word, bossy loose. In fact, everybody could say with me, bossy loose. Bossy loose. One word. Bossy loose. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Bossy loose. That's a little rough. Let's say it one more time. Ready? One, two, three. Bossy loose. Bossy loose is the Greek word that Peter was using here, and that actual word means not necessarily emperor, not necessarily king. It means leader of the people. It actually is not as much what kind of leader? It's the leader of the people. So if we said, well, the author- this is talking about uh, emperors or kings. No, it actually is translated that in most of our Bibles, emperor, king. But it actually means leader of the people. We are called to submit to the leaders of the people. God has placed this over us. But let me be clear. We do not submit to our government or leaders because we trust them. We submit because we believe in God's glory and we trust God. Remember, I love y'all. You're my dear friends. And it might be a hard pill to swallow. But we don't submit because we actually trust them or like them. We submit because God put them in place and we trust God and want to bring glory to God. And we want our authorities, our leaders, to eventually bring glory to God. Don't we want our authority to bring glory to God? I want them to. So we need to voluntarily cooperate by giving them authority and control. In Romans 13, 1 and 2, it says, Let everyone be subject and governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God established. The authorities that exist are established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so willingly be judgment upon themselves. Let's look at that first verse one more time. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that God established. Those authorities that God, the authorities that exist have been established by God. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you believe God is sovereign? Do you believe God has power to control anything he wants? Which means God has placed leaders in place. So the question is not do we trust leaders. The question is, do we trust God? Do we trust God to submit cooperation? Do we trust God with our leaders? You see, we have been fighting a physical battle and not a spiritual battle. And we're called to fight a spiritual battle. We, we have bad opinions about Trump. We have bad opinions about Biden. And we tell people and joke about people. I've heard people, believers, call President Trump a narcissist. And I've, called, I've heard people who are believers mock Joe Biden, call him Sleepy Joe. And yet, if we keep reading in this, it says this. Live as free people, but not as freedom to cover up your evil. When we're slandering the people that God's placed in place, we are actually using freedom to, to cover up our evil. But rather, show respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Or honor the one who's the leader of the people. Can we actually say that? Can we say that we show respect to everyone, we love family of the believers, we fear God and honor their emperor? In fact, generally we say, well, I'll respect to people, I'll respect people who earn respect. But it doesn't say that. In fact, I would love for you to, on a piece of paper, write down everybody you think that this should exclude. Then when you get your list done, throw it away. Because it's garbage. Because we're called to honor all people. To respect everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the leaders over the people. Brothers and sisters, are we living godly lives or are we living our own little world 
of what we think is a godly life because it's our rights, our freedoms, our positions. We are called to trust, walk in faith and trust God. Now, someone say, well, is there ever a time to disagree with authority or to go against authority? That's a really great question. And I would absolutely say absolutely yes. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 29, Peter, the same man who wrote this, he was preaching in the name of Jesus. And the Sanhedrin came to him and said, listen, you got to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And you got to start, stop telling people about the crucifixion. You got to stop. And Peter said this, we must obey God rather than human beings. So here's the point where we can draw the line. When they clearly tell us to go against God, we will not do that. For that instance, that instance. But that does not mean we cut them off from honor and respect. That does not mean we go on slamming them. We just choose to understand that in submission, there are orders of authority and God trumps all. He has delegated them authority. And for that instance, we say, I must obey God. And we jump back honoring them again. Right? We're called to do that. The last thing I just want to spend the next just couple minutes on this, this last section here. Because as if it wasn't enough topical, it could be a difficult topic. You know, we talked about submitting to authorities. Yeah, no problem. Let's talk about slavery. Can we do that? Yeah, great times. Here he says this. So slaves in reverent fear of God. This is verse 18. In reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. You see, here in this book, Peter goes from, he starts broad and goes to civil authority, and then he starts small and going down into a smaller group set. And then here, this is talking about slavery, but this is more like a, a, a closer cultural community set. And he's saying, listen, there's still order and structure, and we are called to submit. Now, here's the thing. The slavery here, as I've studied slavery, was not necessarily the type of slavery that we talk about in American history or we talk about in different cultures. This isn't that type of slavery, even though that did somewhat exist. But in this type of slavery, first of all, it, it is about a kind of slavery that was generally brought on by three different ways. Number one way, slavery in the Roman Empire in that first century was brought on through military conquest. When a military defeated another army, they took that army onto them, and they became slaves of Rome. Ironically, they usually put them as fighters in the military for Rome. So they were either say, you, you basically de- dedicate your soul to the Roman Empire, or you go into jail, or, de- or you're dead. So they would fight for military. Number two way that slavery was common that way, fathers would oftentimes sell their children to slavery. And the reason why this was happening is because oftentimes the children were better off in a home than they are in, their, in, a, in a master's home and then in their own home because they were so poor. They couldn't feed their own children. That was the number two way slavery generally happened. The third way that slavery generally happened was this. It was called debt slavery or indentured servant. This type of slavery was common. In fact, it was the most common of the time. And in this type of slavery, it was generally someone who owed a debt they couldn't pay. So whatever goods or services that they had the ability to do, they would volunteer that to start paying off their debt. Those people generally lived back in their own homes, even though they could live in the household of that master. And they would work for 8 to 10 hours a day, work for that person, pay it off, pay it off, pay it off. And eventually when they got paid off, then they would be free again. But during that 8 or 10 hours a day, that master could treat them good or bad. And here he's saying this, listen, when your master is rude to you, when he's, when he's just downright, not easy to get along with, when he's harsh, submit to him. This last group of people would be bakers, um, cooks, uh, lawyers. They would be hairdressers, teachers, just like common people, like you and me. And he's saying, listen, the authority that God's placed in your life, submit to them. Why? 
out of reverent fear for God in verse 18, and out of a conscience of God in verse 19. In fact, the reason why is because God has set them as an authority to honor them. Not because the masters deserve it, not because they are nice, not because they will get ahead, but because God's glory is the purpose of submission. Yeah, I don't know if you guys got this. God's glory is the purpose. Y'all get that, right? You see, here's the ironic thing. Peter addressed two difficult things then. I didn't mention this. Oh, guess who emperor was? Nero. Kind of a pain. He's saying, guys, you might try to make arguments. And actually, that was what was happening. The church was actually pushing back against the government. The church was pushing back against slaves and saying, giving, actually giving slave owners a hard time. And saying, stop. Live good lives to bring glory to God. But he closes with this. He closes with an example of Jesus Christ. He said this in verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit, and no deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate, and when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He was actually saying that to slaves. You guys get that? By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have turned to the shepherd, the overseer of your soul. So I want to close with this question. Is Christ worthy of you surrendering to him? Is his glory more important than anything else? If it is, let's honor him and follow him by voluntarily cooperating with those who God has placed over us. And let's surrender pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, even when it's difficult. And God, as we wrestle through this text this morning, Lord, let us understand that we're not called to trust people, but we are absolutely called to trust you. So Lord, let us trust you with the difficult times, the easy times. Lord, let us celebrate you all things. Trusting you above our circumstances. And Lord, let us have the long game in view, which is your glory. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.